Thanks for that, Viv. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Point. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you join us today as we celebrate uh, Easter together. I'm huge. I'm one of the pastors here. If a friend or family member has brought you, we're glad that you are actually joining us today. There is a sermon outline, your order of services. You might want to pull that out. That will actually help you uh, follow along. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and as I pray for us, please join with me in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you reveal yourself and that you speak in and through your word. We want to pray right now as we open up the Bible this Easter Sunday that you might actually meet us where we are, uh, in our doubts, in our weakness, in the questionings of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Death is actually incredibly cruel. And it's cruel because it violently separates us when it comes to relationships. Uh, It takes from us. It aggressively imposes itself on us. It steals from us. And what makes death so vile and repugnant is that it ends love relationships. I mean, just last week, I sat across the room from parents uh, who lost their 19-year-old son, Jeremiah. Uh, Parents filled with absolute grief and shock. And I said to them, because the last time I saw Jeremiah was when he was in primary school, I said to them, Tell me about Jeremiah, because I'm doing his funeral this week. And his mom did, through the tears, she told me about Jeremiah, what he was like, what he would do each week, the favorite food she would cook for him, what she loved most about him, the things they enjoyed, memories of love lost. And and that's the reason why we grieve when we meet death, because love has been taken from us, and we want love returned. Now, the, the account that was just read for us, I think if you listen very carefully, so much of Jesus' interactions, so much of His dealing with people are the stuff of life. And sometimes we forget that when we hear the Bible reading. Because in this part of the story of Jesus, we meet a father who has just lost his daughter. Uh, Luke's account of chapter eight, uh, in chapter 8, verse 42 of Luke's gospel, the same account in Luke's account of Jesus... Luke's account is even more tragic, because in Luke's account, we're told that this child is his only daughter, which makes things even more devastating. Uh, It's a very unusual story, because there is a middle story to this story, because sandwiched in the story of this father who has just lost his daughter is the story of a woman who has a bleeding condition for 12 years, physically suffering. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at this passage under three headings. It's there in your, in your sermon outlines. Uh, a desperate father looking to have life and love returned. A bleeding woman also looking to have life and love returned. And a dead girl who has her life and love returned to her. And so the first person we meet in this story of Jesus is a desperate father looking to have life and love returned to him. Uh, In your Bibles or in front of you, you'll notice verse 18, a synagogue leader came and knelt before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Now, he's a synagogue leader, which, which actually means he's actually a person of influence and a person of standing and also a person of wealth and power and authority. Uh, But tragedy strikes, death has robbed him of one of the deepest of human relationships, the loss of your child, a son, a daughter. 
Notice that death gives no one special treatment, which is why I say when you read the accounts of Jesus and his dealings, it's always with the normal dealings, interactions of human life that we all experience. No one notice is safe from the sting of death. Wealth will not keep it at bay. Your social standing and influence does not stop it. Uh, youth does not keep death at bay. Notice, it takes young and old. No human power or authority will do it. Uh, the writer to Ecclesiastes, the ancient book of uh, wisdom in the Old Testament, as uh, Solomon observes life in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, he writes these words, Everyone shares a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, the insider and the outsider, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. In other words, the religious and the irreligious, the believer and the unbeliever, people who believe in God and people who do not believe in God, they all share the same destiny. As it is with the good, as it is with the sinful, as with it is with those who take oaths and those who are afraid to take them, the same destiny overtakes them all. That's what the writer to Ecclesiastes says, the Old Testament ancient book of wisdom. Now, in this account, you'll notice we're not told how she died, but it appears that it is very sudden. And, you know, death is actually often unexpected. It's very sudden. And in his desperation, he comes to Jesus. We know that he is desperate. If you look at verse 18, because we read that he bursts in. He interrupts. He disrupts what's happening. While Jesus was speaking, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, He interrupts what's happening, he kneels before Jesus, and he pleads. And notice, he wants love returned to him. My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. This is what makes death so incredibly cruel, isn't it? It ends life, but even more than that, death brings an end to love relationships. Now, why does this father want his daughter back? It's because he wants the love relationship back. He wants love returned to him. He wants the memories of love back. He wants to know love without parting. And so he will not accept death. He rages against death. Now, you may not be a Christian or you have friends uh, who may not be Christian people. And, and sometimes, you know, when I meet people who are not Christian, who are not religious, they'll say to me that death is not something we should fight or rage against. Uh, it's just part of the natural world we live in. Uh, you're born, you live, you die. We should just accept it. We should just embrace it as part of the way things are in the world. People die, period, full stop, accept it. You do enough funerals, you meet enough grieving people, and you know this, you realize that it doesn't matter what people say, the biological reality is that we age and die, we get sick and we die, tragedy strikes and death comes. Yet when people meet death, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a son or a daughter, the loss of a mom or a dad, they rage against it. They fight against it. They're filled with grief and sorrow. And they are even angered because it doesn't seem fair that either they lose someone or they will experience death themselves. Notice that even when biology says that it's natural, in our heart of hearts, we know something is wrong. Because you can imagine something better. You want love to last. You wish for something better. A love that will last for the memories to last, for more time to know love without parting. And so is death natural? 
Well, biology says, yes, it is. But can I suggest to you that maybe, just maybe, it's not the way things are supposed to be because it sure doesn't feel natural when you experience it. The father who's just lost his daughter certainly did not feel it was natural. The poet Dylan Thomas that I quote constantly at Burwood writes that we should not go gentle into the night of death. We should rage, rage against the dying of the night. And we don't allow, you know, our loved ones to leave gently, do we? Because we hold on very tightly to them. We wish things were different. We rage and rage and rage against the dying of the night for those we love because we want love without parting. Death is obscene because it ends life and it ends love relationships. And that's the reason why we rage. Now come back to verse 18. Because this father's words are not just desperate, they also fill with incredible faith. Can you see there? My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And so he doesn't just come to Jesus for comfort. Uh, he comes to Jesus looking for, to Jesus to give his daughter back to him. Jesus, give her back to me. You can give her back to me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you take a step back and you pause, isn't that what we want when love is taken from us? When we are robbed of love, we want love back, don't we? Uh, my father died of cancer over 15 years ago. And, and you know, it's been so long, but there are moments when I miss him. Things will trigger off a memory of the past, and they come back. And then I wish I could have him back. I wish things were different. You see, we wish we could undo the death process. We wish love did not have to end because we want the memories back. And, and this father says to Jesus, Jesus, you can actually reverse what's happened to my daughter. You can bring her back. Isn't that our longing in the face of death? In the face of our death, we want life back. In the face of the death of those we love, we want life back. Death is actually the final and the most intractable of human problems, isn't it? Because it brings an end to everything we love. And, and there is a finality to its power and its authority. And if you know about Matthew's account of Jesus, because Matthew writes the story of the life of Jesus, Matthew in the previous chapter gives us the breadth of Jesus' power and authority. And so, if you follow along in the story of the life of Jesus in Matthew's account, uh, Jesus demonstrates authority and power over sickness and disease, over pain and suffering, over the spiritually oppressed, over the elements of nature, the wind and the waves. And so, what you begin to see is that Jesus heals. He releases the spiritually oppressed. He calms the chaos of nature. But then suddenly, in this chapter, Jesus is being asked to reach even further down into the darkness of life's tragedies and life's pain and suffering. And it raises the question, isn't it, how deep is Jesus' power? Because He's being asked to rescue those no one else is able to save, to restore life to the dead, to return what's been taken from this Father, to return a love that's been stolen by death. Now, even if you did not believe that it was possible, it's what everyone who has lost a loved one actually wishes for. We wish that the one we love could be returned to us. We wish there was someone who could put their hands on the one we love 
so that they could be returned to us. Even if we didn't believe there was someone who could do this, we all wish there was. Now, this father certainly believed Jesus could do it. Now, we're, not, we're actually not told why he had such faith in Jesus, okay? Maybe he believed that Jesus was a powerful prophet, that God was working through. I mean, as a religious leader, uh, he would have known the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament Bible, the stories of Elijah and Elisha who, who raised the dead. It's also possible, and I suspect he was aware of Jesus' power and authority because Jesus has been uh, doing all sorts of things all over Judea. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, we read, Jesus reached out and he touched the man with leprosy and he is healed. In Matthew 8, we also read that Jesus touched the hand of Peter's mother who was dying from a fever and she is healed. And so his words are actually not insignificant because notice what he says to Jesus. He says, my daughter has just died, but come, put your hand on her and she will live. You see there? Can Jesus' power and authority reach down and release her from the jaws of death? Now, at this point, there's an intermission, isn't there? Uh, because there's another interruption because uh, Jesus is going to this father's home, verse 19. And then we read of a woman in the crowd trying to touch Jesus. A sudden interruption, a disruption. Uh, look at verse 20 and verse 21 with me. Uh, just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And so here's a woman who's been, uh, exp who has experienced a bleeding condition for 12 years, an ongoing bleeding condition. Another version of the Bible says she suffered from a bleeding discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we don't know the nature of her condition, but we do know this. From a Jewish perspective, from a religious perspective, nothing could be more humiliating and isolating than continuous bleeding. Now, why? Because under Jewish law, she would have been considered unclean, someone who was untouchable. And so what actually happens here is we're meeting another desperate individual. Uh, we meet the desperate but silent cry of another person, a bleeding woman. You know, first you've got the desperate outburst of a father who's lost a daughter, and now the silent cry of a woman who's hidden. The grieving father might have lost his child and is devastating, but he still has everything else. He's got his wealth, he's got his home, he's got his wife, he's got his work, but this woman actually has nothing. Because of her bleeding condition, she's considered untouchable, unclean, for 12 years. In other words, she's cut off from friendship and community. Uh, she's cut off from any prospect of marriage and children. She's cut off from all love relationships. Hers is actually a, a life of isolation, love denied. To touch her would make you unclean and impure. I mean, what could be worse than to be cut off from all relationships, never touch, never hugged, never love, never embrace, it's death. She has a condition, very much like death, robbed of all love relationships. Uh, just this week, I read an article titled, Why Physical Touch Matters for Your Well-Being. And one of the studies has actually shown that uh, physical contact is actually on the decline in modern times, in families in particular. Why? Because everyone is on their devices. So we spend less time hugging uh, and you know, embracing and touching. 
And studies have actually shown that touch-deprived children have low cortisol. In other words, they're more prone to sickness and disease. They have lower growth development levels than children who are given physical touch, carried, hugged, stroked, embraced. And we know as well from the research that you know, human beings need touch. Psychologist Harry Harlow writes, it's especially true not just in childhood. They don't just need food and water to live, to thrive and to be healthy. The same applies to adults. And that might actually surprise you. Uh, adults need touch too. They are emotionally, they are emotional and psychological consequences, he writes, if you are denied touch. If you are never held, you're never embraced and hugged and loved, well, it leads to high levels of stress and anxiety and depression. You know, I know we pay out the huggers in our congregation, right? You know, where's Alan Lamb? I don't know where he is. He's the ultimate hugger, right? He puts his head on your shoulder, he hugs you, he embraces you, and then, you know, we pay him out. But you know what? When he does that to you, he is reducing your cortisol levels, it's, he's, he is, he, he, that's what he's doing. He's relieving your levels of stress and anxiety. He's helping you. Doesn't mean you should do it, Alan, but some people are uncomfortable. But you know, this woman, she has lived 12 years, denied love. Someone who has never been held, embraced, hugged, and loved. And so like death, she has a condition that has robbed her of all love relationships. No one will touch her. Now, it's understandable that unlike many others Jesus has healed, she doesn't make a public request. So, you know, a lot of the healings of Jesus, they come, everyone knows there's something wrong, they call out to Jesus, Jesus heals. But notice she comes in the quiet. She doesn't come to Jesus openly, crying out for help. She's silent about her condition. I suspect she does that because she's ashamed. What if he won't touch me because I'm unclean? Ashamed, probably, of her condition. And so her cry is a very silent cry. And so we read verse 21, If only I touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And so unlike the desperate father who interrupts and kneels before Jesus, she comes up, notice the Bible says, behind him. She doesn't want to be seen. Okay? She li literally reaches out and touches the edge of his cloak. And in the crowd, she knows no one would see, no one would know. In fact, people around her would not know she's unclean. But let me tell you what she does know. She would know this. In reaching out and touching Jesus intentionally, she would have made Jesus unclean. Right? She would have made Jesus polluted. She would have made Jesus impure because of her condition. But notice Jesus actually knows she touched him. Look at verse 22. I think it's astounding because this woman is not missed. She's not lost in the crowd to Jesus. Jesus turned and saw her. Notice what he says. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that moment. I mean, Jesus knew this woman was unclean, impure, polluted. Uh, he hears the silent cry in her life. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't avoid her. He doesn't say, why did you touch me? You're unclean. He says, take heart, daughter. The same words to the paralytic. At the start of chapter 9, there's another uh, healing there. And here Jesus says, uh, there Jesus says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Here he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your trust in me has healed you. 
in the moment she reached out and trusted Jesus, she was healed. Now, Jesus' healing is nothing short of a resurrection, isn't it? Uh, Because He gave her life back to her. He restored her life to her. He gives her love restored. For 12 years in isolation, she's effectively been dead for 12 years. Love denied because she's unclean. What could be worse than cut off, being cut off from all relationships? Never touched, never loved, never embraced. She has a condition that's robbed her of all love relationships. But Jesus has just restored her life and given her love back. Now, the intermission ends. The interruption ends. Life and love return to the woman. And now we find Jesus in the home of the synagogue leader, the father who has come so desperately to him. And so look at verse 23 and verse 26. He also wants to have love restored. He asks for something much harder because death is final. My daughter's just died. Come, put your hands on her and she will live. And so Jesus now arrives at this home. And what do you find? The funeral has begun. The daughter, correct. And the funeral has begun, hasn't it? Funeral preparations have begun. We read, when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. Uh, There are three Jewish mourning customs, right? You know, in funerals, they're normally customs. Uh, Culturally, in a Jewish funeral, there are three things. The first one was the tearing of your garments, your clothes, because you're so filled with grief. The second one was wailing for the dead. When someone dies, the family would pay mourners to come to wail, to express grief. That still happens in some cultures today. And the third custom was the music of the pipes and the flute, because the music of the pipes was associated with death. And so this is what's happening. Uh, Matthew is telling us that when Jesus arrives at the girl's home, the funeral preparations have begun. Weeping and wailing, the sound of pipes, garments being torn, What does Jesus do? Verse 24, Jesus says, leave, right? Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. The crowds laughed at the possibility of life resuming. A relationship returned, love restored. Understandable because it's absurd. Death is final. Nature dictates that death is final. It's the end. There is no cure. You know, there is no reversal. Death is terminal. But for Jesus, death is not the last word, is it? It's not terminal. It's not irreparable. If you're asleep, the assumption is you will awake. And Jesus is able to awaken those who are asleep under the spell of death. Now, notice what happens. Verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in. He took the girl by the hand and she got up. What does Jesus do? He took her by the hand He touched her hand, and she got up. What did Jesus say in verse 18? Right. So what did the father say in verse 18? In verse 18, the father said to Jesus, my my, my daughter's just died, but come, put your hand on her, and she will live. That's what we open with, put your hands on her, and she will live. We end with, he took the girl by the hand, and she got up. A father gets his daughter back. Life is returned. The memories of love lost are given back to him. A love relationship is returned. Has it ever occurred to you, it's the ending everyone wants? It's the ending everyone wants when death robs us of love. We want love restored. We want love returned to us. We want death reversed. And so I want to raise this question this morning. What if we could have it forever for ourselves and those we love? What if there was really someone who could do that for you, who could give you and give those you love 
the forever love you wish for. You know, the naturalist looks at the world, or the secular looks at the world and says, biologically, death is part of the world. We must accept it. But in our heart of hearts, there is no one in this room who can just accept it. It's the reason why we grieve and we rage and we fight the dying of the light for those we love and for ourselves in life. But what if death could be reversed? What if you could know love without parting? What if there was a way to know love without parting for ourselves and those we love? Wouldn't you want it? You know, I, I, I've often told the story of Sigmund Freud here at Burwood and at Litcombe and Granville. Uh, Sigmund Freud, the neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis. He was also someone who didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. He held a natural worldview. But, it, you know, it's so interesting. You know, when Freud lost his daughter to death, he wrote, As a confirmed unbeliever, I have no one to accuse. I have no one to accuse and realize there's no place I can lodge a complaint. He felt grief. He felt the pain of loss of a broken heart, love stolen from him. And so even if you were not a Christian, you held a natural world, you believed death was normal, yet your longing for love without parting, to have love restored, the feeling that what has happened is wrong and you have been wrong remains. It haunts you because you want something better. Even if you didn't believe there was something beyond death, you wish death could be reversed because you want something better. When death intrudes into our lives and into the lives of those we love, what is your deepest desire? You long for love to be restored. You want love returned. You want the memories brought back. You want death reversed. In fact, what you want is actually a resurrection. Did you know that? You wish, you actually wish for a resurrection. You wish it was possible. And Jesus in this story does that, doesn't he? He doesn't just meet the deepest longings of this father's heart. He meets the deepest longings of the little girl's heart as well because he restores love for her. He reverses death in her life. He gives them both back their lives. A dead girl has her life returned to her and a desperate father has his life and love returned to him. Now, it's an incredible story. Even if you didn't believe this was possible, it's still the ending we want. It's still the ending we long for. We wish such things were true. We wish it were true in our lives, certainly. I wish someone had the power to make such an ending possible, not just in my life, but also in the lives of those who grieve before me at the loss of those they love. And we wish this were true for the people we know that we love so dearly. And Jesus actually says, He has come to do just that. The reason why He's able to heal and give life to the woman who's bleeding for 12 years, why is Jesus able to do that? Well, He's able to do that because at the cross, He takes on Himself her infirmities, her sickness, her death, her uncleanliness. As Jesus touches and heals the sick, the diseased, the unclean. Do you know what He's doing? If you go back a chapter a couple of chapters really, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. I'm going to read it for us. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, you go back a couple of chapters, and Jesus, we're told, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with the word. He healed the sick. And then Matthew actually tells us the re how Jesus is able to do is we read, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
He took our infirmities. He bore our diseases. He took our infirmities. He bore our diseases. Good Friday at the cross, we celebrate Jesus taking on Himself our sickness, our disease, our infirmities, our sin. That's what happens at the cross, a great exchange. He becomes sick so that you might be healed. He becomes diseased so that you might be cured. He becomes unclean so that you might be clean. He takes our sin so that you might know forgiveness, the ultimate healing. His blood is poured out, Good Friday, so that we might have life returned to us. And in this story, so that she might have life returned to her. But then you'll notice in this account, uh, you'll notice uh, he wants to deal with something far greater that robs us of life, greater than sickness, greater than disease, greater than uncleanliness. Jesus wants to deal with death itself. Because isn't death the ultimate infirmity? Isn't death the ultimate sickness and disease that's terminal? And so at the cross, Jesus takes on himself death. That's why he dies. He faces death in our place. At the cross, what happens is Jesus allows death to swallow him. He allows death to separate him. He allows death to take his life. He will face death in our place. And what we cannot do, He will do for us. And that's why the Easter weekend is so significant in the Christian calendar, because as the story of Jesus unfolds at Easter, Good Friday, we celebrate the death of Jesus. Easter Sunday, we treasure the resurrection of Jesus. We'll find that death at the cross gives way to resurrection. Darkness will not be the last word. Darkness gives way to light. Death will give way to life. At the cross where Jesus died, death was not the last word because Jesus conquered it. He crushed it. He overcame it. I've put it like this before. We have a champion who has faced death for us. In fact, death is actually the unwanted consequence of the world in which we live. We know it's not natural. We know because we wish for better. We can imagine better. Death is the intruder in our lives that has come into the world. We know because it separates and ends love in our lives and the lives of others. Death was never part of God's good design for our lives, for human life. You and I and the people we love were not created to age, to decay, to fade, to be sick, to know disease and death. That's why we rage and rage against the dying of the night. But then into our world comes a champion, dying for our sin, taking on himself our infirmity, our disease, our uncleanliness, our judgment, he allows death to swallow him. He subjects himself to the power of death. In other words, what Jesus does when he dies is he engages in mortal combat with death itself. And the good news of Christianity is this. The author Tim Keller puts it like this. Jesus was swallowed by death and he exploded in its bowels. Jesus was swallowed by death and he exploded in its bowels. He did not just defy death. He did not just deny death. He destroyed death. The death of Jesus spells the death of death. That's the reason why Paul can say later on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? And so Easter Sunday, we have a champion who has died for us, who was buried, and who was raised to life. That's why on Good Friday, we celebrate the death of Jesus, and on Easter Sunday, we treasure the life of Jesus, His resurrection. We have a champion who has died for us, 
who was buried and who was raised to life. Now take a step back. If this is true, it means Jesus is able to give us the ending all of us ultimately want in our lives, isn't it? For ourselves and those we love. He's able to give us love without parting. He's able to reverse death. He returned the life and love of the woman who was suffering for 12 years, cut off from love. He returned the life of a little girl swallowed by death, cut off from love. He returned the life of a desperate father, cut off from love. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, lost his 14-year-old daughter, Magdalena. He lost her really to sickness, to the great plague in 16th century Europe. Uh, those who knew Luther wrote of his loss in his life, and uh, they, wrote, they write really of the account of her burial. This is what they write. Brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from her pain. Then when she had finally died, the carpenters were nailing down the lid of the coffin. Luther screamed out, hammer away. Hammer away, for on the last day she shall rise again. Friends, isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we long for and we wish for? Death destroys love. And what we want, what we wish for, what we long for is to have love restored. The memories of love given back to us. Given back to us because love has been taken from us. That is the Christian hope. In the face of death. No one escapes death and the separation it brings. And you know, there are tears because of death. The tears are real. But the story of Jesus giving life to the bleeding woman is love restored. The story of Jesus giving life to this desperate father and to his daughter is love restored. And it's really only a small picture of what Jesus will ultimately do for us and for those we love who have put their trust in him. He'll give us love without parting. He'll restore love that has been lost. He'll return love stolen from us. He'll reverse death. And Jesus has made it possible because He confronted death for us and He conquered it. And that's why we, ce- and that's why we celebrate Easter Sunday. And, from, and for all of us here, all we are asked to do is to trust Him this morning. Will you do that? Maybe you've come as a visitor, haven't been to church for a while. Maybe you've really never thought about Christian things or spiritual things. Well, maybe Easter Sunday is going to be a good Sunday for you as you put your trust in Jesus who died for you and who rose to life for you. Please join with me in prayer. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? O church, come, stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Our Father and our God, we thank you that because of Jesus, death will never be the last word for us and for those who trust you. We thank you that the sorrow of death will never leave us lonely because Jesus cared enough to face death in our place. And we do thank you this Easter Sunday that because he conquered death, Because He rose, we can live in the hope of love restored, love without parting, death reversed for ourselves and those who love and trust You. In You, we put our trust and our hope this Easter Sunday. Amen.